So we're back, we're back from the cliffhanger about 1953. Um, and it was it was a monumental year for Sam professionally and personally. But pro professionally it was good because I read in this book, and it wasn't Daniel Wolf's book, I think it was another book I read, that he finally found his vocal signature vocal style his mm, trademark yeah. you gonna do it for us michelle you oh right now on the spot you gonna do it for us <laughs> i think i'll come back <laughs> you're gonna put it in later i'll put it in later um but it was that whoa now yeah. <clears throat> oh. perfect that's it that's it with the soul stirs and it it flowed magically out of him it mm. was amazing and you know also 1953 was also big for appropriation reasons because <laughs> what a way to say it that's the best right appropriation reason you know because i read this and i'm like i we got to talk about this i mean sam had his first three kids they all like within a matter of weeks and weeks, but the ladies that he was with, well, he, I don't think he was with them, you know, cause he was a heartthrob <laughs> on the road. He, you know, he was Sam Cooke, but he had the first three of his seven kids in 1953. So in like in April, like one kid was born on 1925, 19, sorry, April 25th. And that was actually, he would end up marrying her mom. And then there was another little girl that was born. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold to, on. He, oh, he ended up married. I got confused. Yeah, okay. ended up like years he later. We'll get to that. Up. Yes, okay, you're okay. right. Yes, yes. Keep That's good. <laughs> One kid was born in uh, April 25th. Another kid was born like April 23rd. Another kid was born a few weeks before that in March. <laughs> I mean, so he was no joke, well, right? Well, aren't they all? Oh, no, I was going to say they're all Aries, but they're not. Those are two Tauruses, but that's, it's hilarious. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's pretty funny, though. I mean, it <laughs> is, because I, I guess a lot of successful men, ambitious men, have had a lot of kids. And I looked it up, by the way. Like, that little big, my little big pencil, you know, Big pen and mm -hmm. like Marcel Bick had like ten kids. Really? Think, yes, by like multiple women. That's amazing. He's no I joke. can totally picture you doing that too. To be yes. like Miss Madam Researcher to be like I had huh, to looking at a pen. Big pen. Oh, I'm gonna look up <laughs> big pen. Marcel Bick. Bick. You know, she's like, you know what, we're doing a show on Bick. It was French. <laughs> uh, Fred Smith from Federal who, you know, created Federal Express. He had like ten kids. Dr. Dre got a lot of kids. Einstein had kids, you know, by different women. I don't know how many, but it was enough. Um, and I think about Sam because it just, this is, so a good pal of mine, 
has a friend she and she, he he always went over to her house and her aunt always had these quips and when i thought about it i thought about sam because she would be talking not about sam cook but she would always say like he made her thing sing and i think about <laughs> sam cook and he made a lot of things sing a lot of things he sang he was no joke he was everything was songs around him right it's funny because it's and i saw this moment in uh daniel wolf's book and i i thought i would read it because i thought it kind of best sums him up with the ladies and it basically says he was quite the ladies man he had a seemingly bottomless appetite and it wasn't just sexual he loved companionship he loved talking with women trying out new songs on them. He loved just hanging out and they loved him back. Sam never appeared to be hitting on anyone. He didn't have to. His big smile and smooth brown skin, the way his body arched when he stood on tiptoe to reach a note were more than enough. And the women would flock around him and his courteous son of a preacher's manners welcomed them all. Mm. I thought that was brilliant when I read that. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's very, it's quite in a weird way because, you know, some people could be like, ah, what a dirt bag. But to him, it more sounds, I don't know, it's quite, it's so poetic and beautiful in a weird way. It's like Bob Marley. You know what I mean? Bob Marley. Yeah. So it's it's all a matter of perspective. Yeah. I think if you and I were back there, back, you know, alive back then, we probably have like this eighth and ninth kid. (laughs) Maybe the tenth. (laughs) <laughs> the cheerings. Well, who knows? Are doing in with the cheerings? He had a, had he, you know, he had a fairly short life. So I, I'm sure had he been around longer, there would have been a lot more. <laughs> I know seven kids by 33 years old. That's shocking. He really tore it up. He really, he, you know what? He, you, like we said earlier, he was really going through life. Yeah, it's fast just like food. I think there's probably an element to him that knew, you know, just to like yeah. live fullest. And because what he achieved and the big life he lived for such a short period of time yeah. is astonishingly remarkable. I know. He lived more than we've lived. Oh, you know I mean? by like, epically far. Dang, he's beating <laughs> kids and everything. He's, he's like tore it up, um, which is pretty admirable because I think that's what made him such a renegade, such mm-hmm. a nonconformist. And I guess it makes sense that he would have a lot of kids because by all accounts, he loved all of his kids. And he yeah, that's, a big family. that is good though that he was there. Like yeah, know, I, I hope he be. was. But. Oh, well, let's believe that he was. Let's <laughs> he, tell that part of the story. <laughs> he came from a big family, mm-hmm. so maybe he used to having a lot of kids. I mean, he had seven kids. He was one of seven mm-hmm. by his parents, but you know, he definitely was a renegade, and he was brassy. Um, and I think that's probably why he started getting restless again. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of these artists that we'll talk about have a sense of just like a restless spirit. They're not happy with the status quo. And that's why, you know, he's definitely a risk-taking rebel in that he, in 1957, so he'd only been with them. He was with them for like seven years. And then he decided at the ripe old age of 26, he took a huge risk by leaving the Soul Stirs. You know, he went solo and switched to secular music, which was a huge deal, especially back then, because no one ever went from 
uh, gospel to secular music. And I think that he was like the first, and I think he was an inspiration for Aretha Franklin, mm. who grew up in the church, you know, was a preacher's kid. And, you know, when they saw her, they like, you know, saw him do it. They're like, okay, I think we can do this. But, you know, I think when he was kind of with the Soulsters, I want to say kind of, but he, you know, he still wanted to change. He wanted to do something different. So he wrote a letter to Art Rupi or Roop. Um, by the way, Art Roop is still alive. Oh. He's 100 years old. That's amazing. He turned 100 in September, like wow. a, a month ago. Wow. Isn't that incredible? That is incredible. Art is probably the last of the weekends of all those old-timey wow. you know, labor owners. But he outlasted them all, didn't he? Yeah. Um, but I think that he um, wanted to change. He wrote Art a letter. And he basically said, this is what I want to do. And I think it was almost not like a veil threat, but sort of like, I'm going to do it anyway. So Art like, like, oh, no, 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 stay, do it with us. So he um, recorded a song and we talk about authenticity all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, you and I, even when we were walking last night, we talked about authenticity, authenticity. And Sam kind of veered away from that. He recorded a song, but he recorded it under the name Dale Cook, mm. which probably was a mistake. It didn't do well because he, you know, I think somebody said in one of the books, he's, he still sounded like Sam. Yeah. You know, but he's one of the so Dale So why Cook. did he want to be Dale Cook? I think he listened to what... I, I kind of think that the record label might have said do it under a different name because he was still technically with the Soul Stars. Oh, yeah. So, but you can't really hide that voice. Right. Like, you, you can't. can't. Like, it's such a unique, like, even to this day when there's been, you know, millions of other singers and tons of new, beautiful, amazing voices that have come along since the 50s and that his voice still, you're never going to go, oh, who is that? It just doesn't right. happen. Because even now, there's a ton of great singers, but there's a lot of times that I'm just like, is that so-and-so or that's so yeah, like, I can't tell who is it. Like, it could be a bunch of, mm -hmm. but like Sam Cooke is under, there's certain people that's undeniable. Like, you know, Michael Jackson, like, you know, totally. Houston, you know, even earlier, we talked about, you know, Eminem. Like, it's just, right. <laughs> you know, if Eminem starts, you don't sit and go, is that John or who is that? Is yeah, that like you always know. And Sam no, Cooke is under no. that category. Right. That, you know, 60 some years later, it's there's no their voice. There's no question. It wouldn't matter if his name was Scott Morris. Right. Like the cat. <laughs> yeah, like Scott. I wish Scott could sing like Sam Cooke. Scott can do that. He can meow like that. He can. He, he can. can. Meows with no sound. He's like. <laughs> and right, because he didn't go with his authentic spirit, mm -hmm. the song didn't do well. It didn't do well. But you know what he had? He didn't let that get him down. He's like, oh, mm -hmm. good. I'm going to write something else, and I'm going to go right back up in there. Mm -hmm. So before he recorded his next song, Art required him to sign another contract. Um, and here were the terms, and I think you got them too. But it's $25, $25 a side to cut eight sides. I don't know what that means, though. What's eight sides? Oh, you know what? Like when it was like a 45 or mm -hmm. whatever. Maybe it was like a do, like each side, I guess, from yeah. a forty-five record. So twenty and twenty-five dollars a side, side, and, and that doesn't count to cut any eight sides. That's no. Um, that's not the royalty. Because he got a cent and a half royalty per song, 
That's and still not a lot of money, though. But sadly, that more than doubled what he made with the Soul Stirrers. That's why he's like, yeah, give yeah. it, give it, give it, you know? Um, it's just crazy because why you add that up, probably. Yeah. I'm going to go keep going and say that doing one of the recording sessions and um, Miss Gabby's going to talk about Bumps. You'll hear about Bumps Blackwell, who was instrumental. He's an A&R guy at uh, Specialty that um, Art had hired and he's really plays a big part in music history. Robert Alexander Bumps Blackwell, the producer of Sam Cooke's hit You Send Me, was an American band leader, songwriter, arranger and record producer, best known for his work overseeing the early hits of Little Richard as well as grooming Ray Charles, Quincy Jones, Ernestine Anderson, Lloyd Price, Sam Cooke, Herb Alpert, and Sly and the Family Stone at the start of their music careers. Born in Seattle, Washington in 1918, Blackwell led a jazz group in the late 1940s that included pianist Ray Charles and trumpeter Quincy Jones. He moved to Hollywood, California to continue studying composition, but instead took a job at Art Group Specialty Records as an arranger and producer. He worked with Sam Cooke and Lloyd Price as well as producing Little Richard during his rise to stardom in 1955 and 1956. In addition to producing Little Richard's breakthrough hit, Tutti Frutti, Blackwell also produced Little Richard's other mid-50s hits, co-writing some of them as well, including Long Tall Sally, Good Golly Miss Molly, Ready Teddy and Rip It Up. They all quickly became rock and roll standards and have subsequently been covered by hundreds of artists including Elvis Presley, The Beatles and Creedence Clearwater Revival. He was the West Coast A&R director for Mercury Records from 1959 to 1963 and produced Little Richard's gospel recordings for that label. He became Richard's manager and continued to work with him into the 1970s. In 1981, Blackwell produced some songs for Bob Dylan's album Shot of Love, including the title track. Blackwell died at his home in Hacienda Heights in Whittier, California in 1985 of pneumonia. You know, he was close to Sam. And during one of the recording sessions, um, Art fired Bumps Blackwell. Um, he fired him right there in front of Sam. Oh, wow. I did find out how much it was. Tell me. Go for $218, it. so that's still not a lot what? of money. 25 isn't a lot of money, but 218 is not a lot of money. Wow. Yeah. Damn. $218.69. $218. And this is all education. It was all education for Sam, as we'll find out, mm -hmm. because... You know, when when he fired Bumps, um, that was probably a, a big mistake to me for Art because Sam finished the recording session that day and he ended up leaving the company with Bumps. But Bumps went back in the next day and they kind of worked out the terms. Bumps always believed in Sam so much that he made a deal with Art to forego any like producing profits to Little Richard and some of the other other um, artists on there, as long as he could take Sam with him. Uh -huh. And Art in a huff said, yeah, he agreed and he allowed him to take Sam's masters as well. That's now, in, isn't that crazy? Wait till you hear one of the songs that was in that recording session was You Send Me. Oh, wow. Well, so they took. I was like, he's like, what did I do? Exactly. Because unbeknownst to Art, Bumps had already was like, you know what, this is not gonna look this is not looking good for here for me. So I'm gonna think me and Sam, they were thinking bigger again, mm -hmm. thinking bigger. 
And he said, okay, you know what? He had already made a deal with Keem Records or right around that time. So they went from one record label to the next. Yeah. And the record label, he let's see, he left in 1957. And by ni- September, You Send Me was released and, and, you know, sold like over a million copies. That's insane. <laughs> but, like, it's amazing, though, that he had the the faith in it, too. Just to be right. like, you know what? And that they even got the masters is, like, shocking. Yes, That's it was shocking. like a huff, you know, yeah. like, mm, you no, know, going back to Sam and his women, you know, I told you about the three women that he had in 1953. Mm-hmm. The sad thing is he did get married. Well, it's great. He got married. That's a wonderful thing is to get married, but it wasn't to any of those three. Oh, dog. It's <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. so funny for someone I love so much that did so many, like, shady See, he had to leave. He had to live. I know, he's like, hey, I'm not going to be here very long. Look, I got to get this out of the way. I got all of us. But it didn't go so well, you know. And and actually, around the time of You Send Me, in 1957, he did divorce. Her name was Dee Dee. She was beautiful, beautiful woman. Um, He was on the road too much. He was on the road. He was making it happen in his career. So that kind of went out the door. But the great thing about it is November, so you jump from divorce, to Ed Sullivan, you know, and he went on the Ed Sullivan show in November of uh, 1957, and Ed Sullivan announced him. He came out, he started to sing, and the um, show was cut off. He barely got through maybe one note, and it was they that would be devastating. Cut the show off. They ran out of time, and I say that with air quotes. Um, but he was cut off, and it was a disaster. Um, he walked off kind of embarrassed probably and the viewers went berserk because that was the number one song right at that point and people started calling the show people went bananas um, and they re- rebooked him so that he had to show up in a few more you know a few weeks later he came back and he killed it wow but it made him kind of because then people were like hey well also it made everybody want him like you know yes. he could have like Yes. You know, not made. It's like going to a show and it's too, you always want to go to a show and it's a little too short and you want more. Yeah. Instead of going to a show and it's too long and you're like, get off the stage. Yeah. Like enough already. Both those shows. <laughs> yes. Yes. But like to want, so it's like in a weird way that almost seems like kind of divinely orchestrated. To yes. That like, then it, that need and want. Because the momentum too. was already there from the single and then it was like, you know, Guy comes out, handsome. You about to sing, you send me, and then it that's goes black. insane. That would cause like full mayhem. It that did. Wasn't, like back, like now, where there's a hundred billion shows on TV, right. that was like that was the show. Viewers went like, berserk. People turned it racial because we black people were like, oh, you gonna cut the black dude off? But it's the number one. But everybody it was everybody went berserk mm-hmm. over it. So much so that. You know, when he came back, it was like, you know, <laughs> you know, I think people can see it on YouTube. Um, what he's what uh, Ed Sullivan kind of made a comment. I think it was his way of apologizing about it. But like you said, it made him because mm-hmm. people were like, he got to come back on. And he said he's I think Ed Sullivan makes a comment about it in the YouTube video where it's like, you know, people were I got so many calls, you know, it was kind of probably overwhelming. Yeah. You know, especially at that time, probably the busy signal because everybody was calling and cursing out and acting a fool, right?
The Ed Sullivan Show is an American television variety show that ran on CBS from June 20th, 1948 to June 6th, 1971, and was hosted by New York entertainment columnist Ed Sullivan. The show enjoyed phenomenal popularity in the 1950s and early 1960s. He was regarded as a kingmaker, and performers considered an appearance on his program as a guarantee of stardom. The Ed Sullivan Show is especially known to the World War II and Baby Boomer generations for introducing acts and airing breakthrough performances by popular 1950s and 1960s musicians such as Elvis Presley, The Beatles, The Supremes, The Dave Clark Five, The Animals, The Beach Boys, The Jackson Five, Janis Joplin, The Rolling Stones, The Mamas and the Papas, The Love and Spoonful, Herman's Hermits, The Doors and The Band. Jim Hansen performed some of his Muppets characters on the show 25 times between 1966 and 1971. Elvis appeared on the show three times. Sullivan hosted a second appearance by Presley on October 28, 1956. Elvis performed Don't Be Cruel, then Love Me Tender. Sullivan then addressed the audience as he stood beside Elvis, who began shaking his legs, eliciting screams from the audience. By the time Sullivan turned his head, Elvis was standing motionless. Elvis appeared a second time in the show and sang Love Me. Later on, he sang a nearly four-minute-long version of Handel and was shown in full the entire song. For the third and final performance on January 6, 1957, Presley performed a medley of Hound Dog, Love Me Tender and Heartbreak Hotel, followed by a full version of Don't Be Cruel. For a second set later in the show, he did Too Much and When My Blue Moon Turns to Gold Again. For his last song, he sang Thomas Dorsey's song Peace in the Valley. The Beatles appeared on three consecutive Sundays in February 1964 to great anticipation and fanfare, as I Want to Hold Your Hand had swiftly risen to number one in the charts. Their first appearance on February 9th is considered a milestone in American pop culture and the beginning of the British invasion in music. So after that, you know, they were like, you know what, this is fabulous. Now we're going to book him with the Copacabana. And that was like the preeminent... Uh, nightclub back then it was the ultimate one. the only thing about the copa is that it, at that time it didn't allow black people in the audience insane only had a white audience and but they could have black performers yes like a lot of things like, back then uh, are we swearing because how fucked up is yeah that? <laughs> yes we are yes we are yes we are and it's nuts and so he goes to the copacabana on, in 1958, by the way, it's March, and he bombs. He bombs because we go back to authenticity. Uh -huh. He wasn't, you know, I think he thought, okay, this is a white audience. I got to be a certain way. Uh -huh. So, you know, it really took out the gospel feel, which made him so special, even uh -huh. with the pop standards. You know, when he infused his heart, because he loved yeah. gospel, it was in his heart. And we go back to authenticity. When you veered, like he veered, just very few times he veered from his authenticity and it goes horribly wrong. Wasn't himself, you know? And, you know, and it's just kind of sad that, by the way, Variety wrote, you know, one of the reviews about his night at the Copa. It, they wrote that the handsome young Negro lad might be a teen idol, but he doesn't seem to be ready for the more savvy Copa clientele. Wow. That's what he wrote. But that didn't get him down. He, he talked about it on um, in an interview that he did um, on YouTube. And he's like, yeah, I bombed. You know, he didn't get it. He, didn't, he, he shook it off. You know, he brushed off his shoulders like, whatever, I, I got this. I'm Sam. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, it's kind of sad because on the racial side of it, even though his songs were crossover hits, you know, Sam faced a lot of prejudice daily, you know, especially when he toured, you know, um, for instance, he, he and, you know, he stopped with bumps to eat in like a Howard Johnson, I don't know, the restaurant in Howard Johnson Hotel, and they wouldn't serve him or anyone at his table. And then adding insult to injury, somebody played You Send Me on the jukebox. What? Yes. Ah, that's insane. <laughs> the waitress started swaying to the song. And, and did she recognize him or anything? You know what? That's the thing is that. I mean, it wouldn't he even matter. Like, the fact that you're not serving yeah. someone is already pretty atrociously disgusting. Yeah. But just the fact, I mean, that's so. Uh I, it's just, it's shocking. He left in disgust. Sorry. He's like, I can't believe this shit. You know what I mean? So he, they it's didn't hard to believe, though, that I it was know. still, like, going on that, like, still up into the 60s. You know, right. Like. Right. And so intense. Mm-hmm. It was so intense. I mean, can you imagine somebody's playing your song and they won't even serve you? And it's playing on the jukebox. I, I, it's insane. I can't you imagine know. that. That's insane. It's so wrong on so many levels. Crazy, it's crazy, but you know he didn't get let any of that get him. Well, even that, that what you were about to just that he didn't let it get him down. Like Mm -hmm. even that to be like that amazing of just having that inner conviction too. Yeah, just be like I'm not gonna let this bullshit hold me down. Yeah, I'm gonna keep going. But you know, I'm not to say that probably these instances did add up to anger him. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, he left him disgust. You know, he was well, yeah, frustrated and disgusted by it. Um, and Whereabouts was what? Where was it? It was in New Jersey. Okay. It was in New Jersey um, at a Howard Johnson. I think it was the restaurant. And um, but it was kind of crazy to see the the waitress swing to the song. You know, it's crazy. She must. I mean, well, we won't go into her. But anyway, so let's not give her any attention. <laughs> exactly. <starts>. Exactly. <laughs> at Keen, you know, he started, which is kind of good because at Keen. He started working with a young um, Lou Adler and Herb Albert. Herb Albert, who both went on to have amazing careers, and they wrote with him. I mean, he lived with Lou Adler because he was a bachelor at this point, and he lived with Lou Adler for a bit, and they wrote a lot of songs, all three of them. Lou Adler and Herb Albert were, they were childhood friends, I think, and then they came to Keene as different roles, Um, but they started writing a lot, you know, Herb Albert would go on to have his own record company and have all these hits, you know, um, and uh, they wrote songs constantly, those three, you know, and Sam always wrote songs. And at this point, he kind of renewed a relationship with his uh, childhood sweetheart, Barbara, who had had one of his daughters back in 1953, um, and they married in 1959. But what was so key about 1958? Also, I want to say, when You Send Me was released in uh, 1957, that was the first time that Sam had added an E to his name. To oh, cook. yeah. Because he was just cooked without the E for Yeah. That just, there's really no real story about how it came about, about but he decided, I'm going to add this E to cook. Kind of stand out a little mm-hmm. bit. And that is when they released it. And it does. Yeah. You know, it does. Yeah. He added an E to cook because he was always just C-O-O-K. Um, and, uh, you know, the one thing also, which we were just talking about the racial environment then, but he stopped processing his hair. A lot of 
performers, black performers, you know, uh, Malcolm X called it conking. You know, they put uh, perm, they perm their hair. And um, he just decided, you know what? I'm not gonna do that anymore. I'm just gonna wear my hair natural. And a lot of, you know, black performers at the time was so impressed with that. They were like, wow, Sam Cooke stopped processing his hair and he just went natural. And it, the decision kind of stunned his peers, but he was happy. That's, this is really when he really kind of sunk into his own skin. Like he really became his own man. You know, that's he why started he's so early. inspiring yeah. on multiple levels. Just from he's a, young. Just like from, like even taking, he just had such an essence about him. And I think it just all came from that very early, young, knowing who he was and mm. like honoring that, like being in all aspects, just his confidence to be, even as a five-year-old, to be like, oh yeah, you know, I want the solos and be like, you're no, you're not having them right now. But just <laughs> have that, just to have that confidence and ownership. And even, yeah. I mean, it's so inspiring to even think of him bombing and being like, yeah, so what I bomb, carry on. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like that's Whatever. very, that's really, really inspiring and amazing that an artist, because artists can be fairly fragile as well. That's true. He didn't have that. That's like true. That he had that strength and confidence with everything he did, mm-hmm. despite all the other stuff that was going on too. At a very, you know, there was tons of racial tension at that time yeah. too, and just. Uh, he was like 26 or 27. Like to have imagine? that at 26 or 27? I didn't have that type of confidence at 26. I don't know if I'll ever have that type of confidence. Me neither. <laughs> I think it's so impressive. That's why I think it's so amazing. Yeah. I mean, and that's what, like you were just saying, I, that's why I think it's important that, you know, these rocket babies that are listening to this podcast, no matter what age they are, mm-hmm. just to like be your authentic self. I kind of feel like that's the big, I mean, even how we talk about this, it's so much is about being you. And like, we Mm -hmm. are talking about, we're going to be talking about so many different musicians and whether you know them or don't know them, you like get to know them and can be so inspired by so many people. And even it goes back to like the uh, Fred Rogers quote about how like, you know, anyone's story, like anyone could be interesting and right. really care about them too and true i mean we're talking about remarkable people but mm-hmm. I mean, yeah because everybody is unique and beautiful in their own way and authentic you just got to find who you are mm-hmm. and stay in i guess you know be comfortable in your skin i guess that's the right way to put it. i think that's exactly and that's it's really weird that so many of these artists that we've been interested in we're not mm-hmm. gonna not gonna say anything mm-hmm. yet but they all a lot of amazing artists have kind of left this planet slightly early and many of them had to have they all had this this thing like this this confidence to just I mean and to think if we all sort of lived like that you know like to take the chances to do the things to be like you and to be ourselves because we came into this world in whatever body we're in Mm -hmm. so might as well make the best we can do with yeah. who we are, where we're from, whatever our circumstances were, and just be, make that the best version of you. I mean, right. I didn't even know we were going to talk about this, but this is like, I know, fun. right? It can't help it. It can't help it because he, he brings that out of you. The, you know, if you think about his theme is authentic, he's an authentic soul. 
even know. him owning being like because even him yes. being like t- having tons of women and having three kids in the same month <laughs> with three different women it's like just owning it yeah like, our sex in the city with samantha like <laughs> like when somebody owns it like it's yeah there's yeah. it's like if you are i don't know it's just, just being totally you different vibe when someone's so confident in whatever yeah. it is just it doesn't matter if people like it or not if you don't like it, don't come to the show. That's yeah. about whatever it is. <laughs> totally. And you know what? That's probably the one thing that keeps people inspired and doing it, looking at or staying on board and being becoming super fans or whatever because they see that person. Like even I think with Chester Bennington and Lincoln Park, that's the one thing they said about him. You know, his pain really came out in the songs he wrote. And he was willing to just be brave enough to talk about his um, life and, you know, abuse or whatever it was. Um, but it's just amazing how that is so, I, I want to, I can't think of the word. It's um, like it, it draws people to you, I think, mm-hmm. when you, when you, when it's Well, because like I think all of us come, you know, nobody has the answers we not right. we're born here being like what the fuck that's i think all of us we can think we know but that's mm-hmm. nobody comes here with any answers right and so that's why through music through art through tv through interactions with everybody we meet we try to find connection and meaning and when people are that's the power of music i think is because it's a it's a way that transcends everything mm. uh, how many times have i said transcend in this last one i said it <laughs> but, i said it about five thousand times yeah. it's okay it's but a it's good like word it's, it's a, a way to word. connect people no matter who or what like even at the beginning we were talking about like you know you're a little girl in south carolina i'm like up in canada mm-hmm. and we're being affected by the same artist that was from decades before like that's a, it's so powerful it, yeah. it just and I think that's why when like an artist can just be themselves and wear that outside, that's how people connect. Yes. I mean, how we talk about my good friend, Oprah. Yeah. I know we're good friends, but we don't know <laughs> Oprah. Exactly. Um, why is she so massive? She is authentic and she is right. open. And, right. And she really, even though she's like at this superstar stratosphere, mm-hmm. she still manages when she, she talks resonates. to people, it, it seems like she's talking just to that person. Right. And she connects and she's open with her own struggles, you know. Yes. It, it, and she's open with her fabulousness too. Totally. She she is My good comfortable in her own skin. <laughs> that she does. She resonates. Yeah. She resonates. And I think that's what the key is. That's the word I was looking for. Resonate. Yeah. And that's I think when you are comfortable in your own skin in whatever field you choose uh-huh. and whatever you want to do resonates mm-hmm. it's almost like a i don't know it's um, well it's vibration and you know vibration. what it's okay look around this right now the room we were in right because i am a musician i also do um sound healing and all sorts of wacky stuff but every mm-hmm. instrument including the bowls keyboards guitars our souls we're all vibration every, mm-hmm. and that's what resonating means it's a vibration so in music it's there's no accident. This is all the same. We're all made up of the same thing. Right. And, you know, of course, to get all deep and spiritual here, but still, it's resonate. Resonate is a musical term. Everything's vibrate. Vocal cords are vibration. True. And and Sam's voice had that perfect vibration of magic. Yes, he did. Yes, did he you did. you see my hands? Dude? I know. I like that. You did. They, <laughs> did it. Well, do that again. That, that works. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, I hate to say it this in, in November of 1958. Now we're going to go vibrational magic to something serious that happened to Sam. He was on his way to a gig in like the middle of the night. And he was riding a 1958 convertible. And I think, yeah, Eddie. Eddie was doing the driving. Now, Eddie, I think, I don't know if he was a part. He might have been a part of the band. But he did all the driving on uh, when T Sam was touring. And uh, Eddie was going kind of fast, and um, Lou Rawls was with them. You know, Lou Rawls. Lou Rawls was a good pal of Sam Cooke's, and he traveled with them. I think he was in the band or had his own group. And so, um, Mr. Eddie was driving, and he smashed into a, a truck, and it shaved off the top. I think I think Sam woke up just as it was going because he was asleep, kind of the middle of the night, and he saw like it coming towards him, and supposedly he said. Jesus help me. And I think he got down just enough, but it killed poor Eddie. And Sam was in the hospital. But, this, but the thing is, he was in the hospital for just like a little piece of glass. Poor Lou Rawls was like in a coma for like like five and a half days. Mm. Um, Sam escaped with minimal injuries. Like a, He said it's like a little glass he had right here on the side of his little eye. Nothing, you know, catastrophic, but it, you know, sadly... Mr. Eddie died, um, you know, and that this helped, this was a turning point. This was a huge turning point because it made him rethink his uh, contract with King. And this is where it's coming down to him going, okay, now if I'm gonna do this, we're gonna, we gonna be serious about this. And I need this to, you know, he became, that's when the businessman side, this business savvy side of him stepped into it in, in his 20s. Um, and he went a step further and he went back to them. He wanted more than just a regular label contract. He wanted to own his own publishing. He's like, I want to own my own stuff and stuff that I create. Mm -hmm. And no singer at that time had owned his own publishing. And Sam, um, he required that. And he, that's rare for any time. Yes. Like any time, even today. Oh yeah. Totally. You know? It's. Because it takes a lot to, I mean, it's rare that people own 100%, but right. did he own 100%? I think he, I think he did. I'd have to double check, but he definitely said, I want to start owning my own stuff. Wow. Like, I need to own my own publishing. And so, you know, because most artists, like you said, end up broke, you know, even if they have hits. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he just didn't want to keep living like that. And then... Something else happened, another accident. His first wife, Dee Dee, died in a car accident that he had bought for her. Yeah, he bought her. She was driving the car that Sam had given her. And he went to the funeral and paid for it. Um, but he was like, you know what? There's some changes to be made. But on an upbeat note, on an upbeat note, I'm going to take a, a sip out of my margarita. <laughs> Your margarita's still there. Mine's like gone. <laughs> I, we're almost even, Stevens. I don't know about um, that. <laughs> on an upbeat note, and I think that this, I was amazed when I saw this, and this is another step that he took in being his own man. Um, he co-headlined a tour with Jackie Wilson, which mm. I think would have been, like, fabulous. He got along with everybody he toured with, by the way. Oh, Nobody funny. he didn't get ever get along with, and they, they were fast friends. He played in the South, but the one thing, when he went and played in the South, he refused to play to segregated artists. Oh, um, good. segregated audiences yeah like blacks would be on one side white folks would be on the other side and he was like he told the guy i'm not playing 
to a segregated audience. So what you gonna do? And the promoters, he was already there, so they were kind of under the gun, and so they didn't want to lose any money. Mm. It was, you know, so they, they mixed them together. Was he one of the first, or if not the first artist to do I that? I think he was. That's huge. I think he was. Um, he did a lot of Chitlin tours, circuit tours, you know, where they played, you know, the Chitlin circuit, so to speak. And, um, you know, uh, he, when I say that he wanted to own his own publishing, he decided to leave King. Mm. And he filed a complaint against King for back royalties and he fired Bumps. Oh. So... Bumps and him split ways in 1959. I kind of sad about that because I love Bumps' story oh, as everybody in here and Miss Gabby's and Miss Gabby's little rock a bit. Um, but he joined RCA in 1960, early 1960. He got married in 1959. Next January 1960, he was already on with RCA and he demanded and received better deal. He can own his own publishing rights. He started his own label. Um, like that's amazing too. Isn't that back amazing? Then. Like yeah. that's incredible. Yeah. Nineteen sixty to like own everything, started like he was he was a solid businessman too. He was a lot more than an art just an artist. Totally. Yeah. Totally. So I think it takes it takes a certain type of person to be and you have to be a business person. As he well. knew his worth. Yeah. He knew his worth and he wasn't settling for anything less. And that's that's incredible because, and this is this name is going to come up too, because he signed his protege, Bobby Womack and his brothers. Um, he had known Bobby Womack um, since they were kids. Um, he was older than them and on the gospel circuit because they were gospel singers as well. You know, a lot of people were gospel singers, but when you saw that Sam Cooke left and went to secular music and did Bonanza, then they, you know, it gave, made people more comfortable um, to do what he did. And so he, you know, they gave him a signing bonus. And he also wanted to create workshops to help um, aspiring singers in um, South Central. Like, he how wanted ridiculous. Isn't that amazing? That's so ahead of his time. Like, that's what people do. Like, that's ridiculous and amazing. And Keen was kind of irritated with him when he left RCA. And it goes back to us saying, you know, you record something and they release it. So he has recorded wonderful world mm. um actually it's co-written by you know herb albert and lee adler and they released it they released it um keen did and it became a huge hit and um and a crossover hit within you know one month so he released that, that was released they did that i think to go mm, you know to get back at him but it became a huge huge hit um also at rca you know with his label he had his own offices and you know, he just loved mentoring. He wanted to get more into that anyway. He was starting to kind of deal with the grind of the road. But, you know, he had more hits. You know, he had Cupid and Twisted Night Away. And he just, during that time, he was, really was on a roll, mm -hmm. a hit roll. Um, and then uh, I think in, like, 1962, this is good. In 1962, he co-headlined a successful tour with Little Richard. And they got along famously. British audiences loved him. And when he played a date in West Liverpool, um, they heard a regional hit called Love You Do by a local band called The Beatles. Oh, yes. And they were huge local Little Richard fans. fans. If you listen to The Beatles, 
you know, they do that whole, you know, how Little Richard goes high, mm-hmm. you know, um, you hear the Beatles do that. And they persuaded their hero, the Beatles persuaded their hero, Little Richard, to do a couple of extra dates with them at the end of the tour. And Little Richard called Art Rufie, see, he called Art and he said, look, all right, you need to sign these cats, you know. He, and Art says, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. And look at what happened. That's like, how do you sleep at night? Like, how would it be <laughs> He's like. He's still alive. <laughs> yeah, just to be like, I made a terrible mistake. Mm. Why? <laughs> Why? I know. I would love to talk to him. We bring him on here, talk to him about it. Uh, see, what, see what his experience, I bet you he got experiences galore. Specialty Records was ended up being bought up, I forgot, in the 80s or something by a bigger corporation. But, you know, Sam hired a new manager, Alan Klein. Um, they continued doing the Chitlin tour. But on one tour after that, he um, there were two youngins on that tour that became huge hits. And one of them was Dionne Warwick. She was another gospel singer. Uh-huh. Whitney Houston's cousin. Okay. Whitney Houston's cousin, and um, the other was Jimi Hendrix. Just like your name. I love Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and his dad was named Al. My dad's name is Al. Um, but Jimi started out as like a goofer, and he, but he stayed mostly to himself because all he did was practice the guitar. Mm-hmm. That's why That's he was Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> yeah. And Jimi remarked about that years later. He would talk about it. He said. I'd have learned more if they let Sam finish the act, but they were always cheering at the end, and I never hear him, heard him do the last little bit. But he learned, you know, Jimmy learned a lot cheering with the uh, Chitlin Circuit tour. And um, how old would he have been at the time? Wow, I think Jimmy would have been way young. He was a youngin. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sam was a youngin if you think about it. Yeah, but he Jimmy been must have been God, in teens still. Maybe late teens. Yeah, because yeah. he died in 27. So Yes, he did. That's right. And this was like 1962 or something. Yeah. And I think from the outside looking in during this time, you know, Sam was kind of on top of the world on his own terms, but he still wasn't happy. Oh, I want to hear more. And if you guys do too, stay tuned for Sam Cooke Part 3. like what you heard don't forget to subscribe and please follow us on twitter and instagram at rockabyespod